This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Charles Murray is a man of ideas, and those ideas are sometimes controversial. He is the W.H. Brady Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a graduate of Harvard University with a Ph.D. from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is also a widely quoted author whose latest book is Coming Apart, The State of White America, 1960 through 2010. Charles Murray, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks very much. I'm pleased to be talking with you. I have been following many of the concerns of your book for a long time. And your book, in one sense, does not come along making arguments that have never been made before, but you are certainly making them on a scale and with a pointed attention to statistical research that I don't believe has ever existed before. But your book also tells a narrative. And I'd just like to you, for you to encapsulate that narrative. Just, just summarize the story you tell us in Coming Apart. The thesis is very simple. It says that there has been a divergence in American classes that is different in kind from anything we've ever had before. I mean, we've always had people who were rich people and poor people. We've, we've always had people who lived in somewhat different parts of town and the rest of it. But, but what's happened in the last 50 years is that one group, what I call the new lower class, has ceased to participate in America's civic culture, and it's a large group of people. And at the other end of the scale, you have a new upper class that is increasingly isolated from and ignorant about uh, mainstream America. And the book consists of, as you suggest, a long, detailed laying out of this, because I'm not trying to make the case with opinions. I'm trying to make the case with numbers. Well, and you are a numbers man when it comes down to the way you use these statistics. And anyone who's read your work before, in terms of previous works, will not be surprised by that. I'll tell you that uh, at some point you can almost be overwhelmed by the numbers, but they really do tell a story. And especially the first part of the story, which has to do with the rise of this elite. I think almost everyone knows there is an elite. Uh, we, we understand that, but you define it in, in very unique terms in this work. The first thing I do is I don't use uh, income as, as a criterion because uh, uh, I think the more important thing than income inequality or income differences are cultural differences. So I talk about the new upper class as consisting of a broad elite and a narrow elite. The broad elite are the most successful 5% of people in managerial positions and in the professions. So the broad elite in Louisville are the people who own the local TV station and newspaper and the most successful lawyers in town and the most successful businessmen and so forth. The narrow elite uh, consists of those people who have an impact on the nation in terms of its culture or politics or economy. So that would include the people who do constitutional jurisprudence. It includes the people who own the television networks, who write the screenplays for major pictures. It includes uh, major federal government officers, elected officials, and so forth. That's a much smaller group. And, and with regard to the new elite, uh, the, the new upper class, I'm really saying that over the last 50 years, we've had two great big trends that have changed it. One is we have had a, a good thing happen, which is the colleges have gotten very skilled at finding talent wherever it is and shipping it off to good colleges. 
This really started in the 1950s, and it's been going on for half a century. There's never been a time to be academically really talented than right now, because you'll get a free ride to a top school. That's great. But what it also means is that, that we've, we've turned these universities into kind of breeding grounds, as it were, for people who are all very smart, very ambitious. Uh, they hang out together. They're socialized together. And they pick up distinctive tastes and preferences that, that basically make a distinctive culture, whether it's the television they watch, the movies they watch, uh, how much they weigh. <laughs> the new elite is very skinny. Uh, most of them, uh, it, with the cars they drive, the beer they drink. In all sorts of ways, there is a very distinctive lifestyle. Then what happened, in addition to getting smart kids to good colleges, is the brains became worth a lot more money over the course of the 20th century. So the, the, this group of people who are very smart, educated, largely at elite schools, they're also affluent. And so you have zip codes around the country, clusters of zip codes, which are very homogeneous in terms of everybody being very well-educated, very affluent, and sharing similar tastes and cultures. I've been following your research for a very long time, and I knew of this research before it came out in book form. When the book came out, I devoured it, and uh, quite honestly, I've been devouring also the responses to it. And I've been surprised, at least in in one sense. Uh, For one thing, in reading your book, uh, and I'll admit I'm a cultural conservative, I'm a, I'm a political conservative in terms of, of thinking through those issues from my own worldview. But I share many of the same concerns, I believe, that the liberals have, both politically and culturally. And if I were to put myself on the other side of the equation, I think I would like your book. But a lot of folks don't like your book. And uh, I, I've, I've tried to grapple with these different reviews. And so even before me right now, I have a review from the left and a review from the right that are arguing the same thing. And, uh, and here's the point I would make. They're both from the same zip code. <laughs> what's, the, what's the zip code? Well, it's, it's Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, the, uh, and uh, then another pairing I saw was also uh, at uh, basically around Columbia University in Manhattan. In other words, they in their own way are making your point. And if I could summarize it, it, it seems to me that one of the points you're making is that there is an increasing class divide in America. And it's a class divide that is not just based on income nor predictable just in terms of income, but it is on terms of some other issues, especially cognitive realities and, and the fact that what you have are, are two Americas, one that lives in ideas and, and dominates in ideas. They are what Richard Florida would call the creative class. Uh, they are the people who control the symbolic uh, process. In fact, you quote Robert Reich, uh, and I appreciated very much years ago when he coined this phrase, symbolic analysts, as the, as the wave of the, of the new idea and uh, intelligence future. And on the other hand, and we'll get to this in a moment, you have the other America that is not just left out, but increasingly left out and devastatingly left out and uh, structurally left out. We haven't talked about them yet either. Right, but that, uh, that, that is how you begin your book in terms of talking about the elite before you turn, because you really don't see the elite as the problem. You, you see the elite as, uh, as part of the structure, but your main concern to me seems to be uh, those who are not in the elite. Well, I have problems with the elite, too, in terms of their role in contemporary society, and it, it's real simple. These people, in effect, run the nation sure. in, in terms of, of shaping the culture and the politics and the economy. And increasingly, they don't have a clue about what uh, ordinary American life is like. They don't encounter it. 
in, in the current generation, the problem's not too bad because you have an awful lot of people in important positions now who grew up in the working class or the middle class, and now they live in the North Shore of Chicago or they live in Northwest Washington or the Upper East Side of New York, but they still remember what it's like in Louisville. Well, they remember what it's like in Des Moines or other ordinary places in America. Their kids don't. And increasingly, we now have another generation coming to influence who were born into affluence. They went to the best schools. They went from there to the best colleges. They went from there to their uh, nice uh, uh, graduate schools and, and professions. They haven't any idea what life in Des Moines or Louisville among ordinary people is like. And they're shaping the economy and the politics and the culture. So I'm worried about the, the new upper class, too. But no, the, the sense in which class, I made that, it, the sense in which I, I was setting that up is where you argue in your book that in terms of public policy, the elite will take care of itself. It, in other words, yeah. the, the, the elites, uh, by the very fact that they are uh, members of that elite, uh, are not, as you might say, in trouble. Now, they have a pathology, and, and you and David Brooks and others have well skewered the pathologies there and and the lack of responsibility they take, but in in terms of public policy, the fact is that this elite tends uh, to uh, to to support itself, to enrich itself, and again, not just economically, but uh, it's that other America that is further and further left behind. Yeah, you know, marriage is the um, marriage is the classic indicator here of this divergence we're talking about, uh, because the the new upper class and the upper middle class in general is still pretty much married. And for that matter, uh, divorce has gone down too. So that uh, if you look at the new uh, upper middle class, you know, college-educated people in managerial positions or the professions, as of 2010, 84% are married, which is not much lower than it was in 1960. Uh, among those are ages, ages 30 to 49. But you look at the working class, meaning uh, high school diploma and blue-collar job or low-level service job. They were up around uh, 84% in 1960 married. It was the norm. Now it's 48%. That is a divergence in cultural classes and social classes that, as far as I know, has almost no precedent. And, of course, once marriage goes down, the bottom falls out of the social capital that's in a community, the, the kind of glue that uh, enables the community to solve problems. It affects men. Uh, because men don't do very well economically when they're single, and they do a whole lot better when they're married. So you have you have the nature of life in white working-class America, all of working-class America, actually, which has been transformed for the worse over the last 50 years. I want to get to that part of the equation, which is labeled Fishtown in, in your book. And But before we leave Belmont, which is uh, indicative of what you call the super zips, these zip codes that become so self-reinforcing. And you talk about such things as marital homogamy, a phrase I had not come across before, in, in which people marry folks just like themselves. And so to a greater degree than ever before, you're having people who marry one another who have similar IQs because they ended up at that strategic point of life uh, when they were at the same university campus or, uh, or you yeah. have a Harvard graduate marrying a Yale graduate. In any sense, it's very much a homogamy, as you label it. Yeah, it's, it's not just that they're both likely to be real smart. They are also have been socialized in the same kind of, of milieu. They they come to that marriage uh, with a lot of assets, which are good in terms of the way they raise their children and so forth. But they also come there with a common worldview, and then they move into towns where the other people are all like them. Uh, so it, you know, with, with all of these things I'm describing, peop, I'm describing people doing what comes naturally. 
look, when we get married, we want to marry somebody who gets our jokes, right? We want to marry someone who we don't have to explain what we mean. But, but, and so that's perfectly natural. But what we've done is make it much easier for the people of the new elite to marry other people who are so much like them that, uh, in effect, they and their neighbors are cut off from everybody else. Well, you make that point very convincingly, and you use some real-life examples. For instance, uh, the developments in a city like Austin, Texas, where you demonstrate there was, it was a fairly small university or college town a matter of a few generations ago, and now it's this megalopolis of the idea, knowledge economy, uh, Dell computers, and all the rest. And you really demonstrate that those zip codes matter. Yeah, and, and there's also, you can contrast it with 1960, and, and something that I did here uh, is I took the elite places to live in 1960, like the Upper East Side of New York and North Shore of Chicago. You know, these are the places that were considered really elite, and yet in 1960, the median family income in such neighborhoods was $83,000, and that's expressed in today's dollars. <laughs> so... Whereas rich people did live in those neighborhoods, there were a lot of people who weren't rich who lived in them, too. Well, you point out that a school teacher's salary, uh, in terms of continuous dollars, would afford an opportunity to live on the Upper East Side. Yeah. Uh, Actually, the median income on the Upper East Side was even lower than that. It was something like $59,000. But here's here's the kicker, which is that in 1960, only 26% of the adults had college degrees. So the typical family unit was the guy had a college degree and the, the wife had a high school diploma. And there was all sorts of, of heterogeneity, of, of variation in the socialization that people brought to that. Now you compare it, the, the guy has an MBA and the woman has a law degree. And, and, and they have both gone through a very different kind of process, and they have had very different kinds of experiences from, from the typical uh, members of elite neighborhoods. And I don't ago. want to leave these elite neighborhoods yet because there's so much there to be gained by looking a bit more closely. For instance, uh, what is taken for granted in those neighborhoods is a certain set of cultural preferences, consumer goods, and, and all the rest that people who shared that same basic kind of elite status generations ago really didn't expect. I mean, I think one of the most interesting parts of your book is where you you document such things as the fact that the rich and the poor drank the same coffee 50 years ago, and that's <laughs> not at all the case now. No, it's not. And they, uh, they also – well, one of my favorite examples is this. 50 years ago, uh, you had lots of executives who made really good money, and they bought Buicks instead of Cadillacs. Uh, but Cadillac was the only you know, fancy car there was in just about except for Lincoln's. And uh, why did they do that? Because to buy a Cadillac was too flashy. It was too show-offy. It was getting too big for your britches. And so there was a strong sense among the elites 50 years ago uh, that they wanted to act as if they were members of the middle class, even though they had lots more money than the middle class. And their lifestyle reflected that. They did not build 20,000-square-foot homes, even though they could afford to. All that's gone. So that you now have increasingly a new upper class, which is very happy, thinking of itself as a new as an upper class. That is way out of whack with America's civic tradition. And the statistics are easy to document. There, for instance, just looking at housing statistics, the growth in the number of these massive homes in which there would have been none of such homes in most communities, and now there are enclaves in which there may be any number of these mega-mansions 
that uh, that basically create entirely separated communities. I, I fear, uh, Dr. Murray, we're, we're headed in the direction in terms of the documentation in your book of something like Brazil. That's kind of what scares me, too. Um, the, it's, it's just too obvious as you drive around that just from visually with these mega mansions that you will have in the really wealthy parts of the country, sometimes it's more subtle than that. If you go to northwest Washington, for example, uh, most of the housing stock there was built 50, 60, 70 years ago. So what's happened is you don't have room for mega mansions. Instead, they have renovated these houses to fill up every inch of lot space in, in many cases. Uh, but uh, but, but they, it, it's not so easily visible. It's the lifestyle that, that's distinctive in this case. TV is an example. The average American TV is on 35 hours a week. Uh, that, that You can say that's too much, but it's also true that most Americans get a huge dose of the popular culture that's going on. Compare that to the television viewing habits of the new upper class. They watch hardly any television at all. And if they do watch anything, it's probably Downton Abbey uh, and, and, you know, or, or DVD movies uh, that they watch on their TV screen. They have almost no contact with the reality shows that constitute such an important part of the popular culture these days. They don't have any contact with sort of the, the ambiance of, of the rest of the country. Why is this bad, you know, that they don't know what Breaking Bad, the television show, is about? There's nothing terrible all by itself, but it is part of the ignorance that they bring when they are exercising their careers, which in turn affect the lives of the rest of Americans, Americans who they don't understand. Well, it's fascinating that you mentioned Downton Abbey, because the ideal of the Victorian British experiment was that the nobility and the upper classes had to live in a certain way so that they would be emulated by those described as the lower classes. In other words, there was that you could call noblesse oblige, but there was certainly this sense, not just of entitlement, but of great responsibility to model marital fidelity uh, the the care for children, the, the proper way of uh, of maintaining a moral structure, and uh, and even a religious structure that uh, that the elites you document in our context just seem not to have even as a concern. Yeah, and the and American elites did the same thing. Um, uh, David Brooks is uh, working on a new book uh, that I have heard him talk about, and and uh, the topic is is uh, in part about the sense of responsibility that American elites used to feel, that they were that they were given much, and from those to whom much is given, much is expected, and that they were stewards of uh, their positions with the run of stewardship. That was a very conscious part of the education you got at a place like Princeton or Harvard or Yale. That's all gone. Uh, trust me, I've been there uh, with Harvard specifically, but also I know about the others, and you do not get indoctrinated at those schools now with the sense of stewardship uh, on, a, on the level of personal behavior. You may get indoctrinated with uh, liberal political values, uh, which means that you're going to vote in favor of lots of money given to the poor, but not do- they aren't indoctrinated into the need to live a virtuous life. And yet an they have moved as a class towards a greater commitment to marriage. You document even a greater uh, participation in church services, as you, as you document by means of 
of statistical data, and, and also just in terms of the kind of thing that's available from uh, the, the GSS, uh, the General Social Survey, and other things, it's clear that the more wealthy you are, certainly as you move closer to this elite, you're less likely to be divorced. You're less likely to have children with uh, with only one parent in the home. You're far less likely to have uh, illegitimacy. You're almost uh, well, it's it's almost statistically insignificant that uh, that you would have a lot of the uh, a, a lot of the behaviors. Uh, for instance, uh, if you're if you're in that elite, you work hard. As you point out, these kids in these colleges, you don't get as an 18 year old to one of these elite universities without working hard to get there. Right. And, and and so they're working hard. They're going to church, and we won't even deal with the theological aspect of that yet. But but they are they're participating in the community. They're doing all the things that uh, that they. And this is something you don't really point to, and I want to ask you this. It, it seems to me that the elites at least pioneered the breaking of those norms before they re-embraced them. Yeah, that's the uh, sad part. The, during the 60s and 70s and uh, into the 80s, when they were young, I'm thinking of, of my generation now, I'm 69 years old. At that time, they experimented with drugs, they experimented with serial monogamy, they did all of that stuff. And then they got older, and they buckled down and went to work. Well, unfortunately, if you the lower down you are on the socioeconomic ladder, the less leeway you have to fool around for a decade and then straighten up and fly right. Uh, for those toward the bottom, making those kinds of decisions when they were in their late teens or early 20s meant that they were going to be stuck for the rest of their lives where they were. Uh, and in that regard, there is an aspect of the new upper class that irritates me a lot, which is that they indulge themselves, are able to recover, and don't recognize the harm they do by setting that example. The elites can then achieve a course correction of sorts. They have the resources. They have a a safety net, often called parents, uh, in order to do that. They operate from a, a, a... a position of protection and security that the uh, those with less uh, advantages simply don't have. And just to take one issue, such as divorce, they did pioneer divorce. I looked this up. In terms of the statistics of divorce, the most likely person to divorce in terms of the 1970s was someone from a professional class, and yet they are now the least likely to divorce. Yeah. It's, uh, and meanwhile, down in the, the working class, which was slower to start divorce, those numbers have just continued to rise along with the even more troubling phenomenon of people not getting married. Uh, people not getting married is not a problem. People not getting married when they have children is a problem. And uh, at this point, here's a statistic for you. Uh, among white working class uh, women, uh, roughly half of all the children, half, are born out of wedlock. In the recent American context, there have been several authors and thinkers who have tried to describe this emerging elite, who they are, how they got there, how they think, how they live, and how they influence the rest of the society. Charles Murray's distinctive contribution in this book, Coming Apart, is to demonstrate how this elite is no longer established merely on the basis of income. That's not unrelated, but it is not the central issue. The central issue is culture, and that's where we as Christians have a basic understanding of why that's right. When you look to the second half of your book, or at least uh, the portion there that deals most specifically with the community you call Fishtown, 
representing the, the dispossessed and, and certainly those who have been left behind in terms of, of white America and this, uh, this sociological development, you're really painting a picture of pathologies that are shocking on their face. The statistics you, you recite and you document in this book are impossible to refute. And uh, just the telling of them, the documentation of them, is uh, an incredible moral experience. Let's just talk about that for a moment. You mentioned illegitimacy, but you're also talking about people who never marry and those who, who get divorced. And and from the, the marital statistics to the uh, educational statistics uh, going on down, this is an America that truly is falling apart. I'll, t- I'll tell you, the uh, one of the really surprising uh, statistics has to do with men and work. Uh, historically, American males uh, in a working age worked. Either they worked or they looked for work. If you do did not do that, you were a bum. I mean, you were looked down. Your parents were disappointed in Absolutely. you. Your neighbors looked upon you as being a slacker. Uh, women didn't uh, want to hang out with you because you were, you were a lowlife. Well, we are now at a point, and this is before the recession hit, okay? I'm talking about 2008, when we still had low unemployment overall, you're now at a point where in the white working class among males, about one out of eight isn't even looking for work. They are living off their girlfriends, they're living off their parents, they're scraping to gather some money in uh, the gray market or engaged in crime, but they aren't even in the labor force. And that is a kind of change in what is expected of a man, which goes to the very heart of uh, of American exceptionalism, actually. Our industriousness was one of the things that uh, has made us the wonder of the world in the past. And in one particular part of society, namely the working class, that that norm has been changing. During my own lifetime, I'm 53, you document, uh, in other words, I was alive in 1960, you, you document that back in 1960 and in that period of the early 60s, Young women, even college women, women who were then in college, indicated by about a percentage of 86% that they intended to be married and that they believed the ideal age for a woman to be married was 21. <laughs> yeah, that's changed. That's particularly in the, uh, well, it's changed everywhere. First, there's just not marriage for a great many of the women in the, in the working class. And for women in the uh, upper middle class, it's late 20s by the time they get married. You talk about the relentless increase, those are your words, of those who never marry. Yeah. And, and you document that. I mean, we're really looking at the fact that people ages 30 through 49 are unmarried, you say, for two main reasons. They're divorced or they never got married in the first place. But the most shocking development is in those who never get married, for whom marriage is not on the horizon. And apparently won't be. In the case of males, again, let's talk 30 to 49, a quarter of them in the working class, white working class, have never been married. <laughs> Just think about that. But that doesn't mean they're not fathers. Male, doesn't yeah. mean they're not fathers. But what that does mean is they aren't engaged in the life of their community the same way that married dads are. You know, if you, if you go out and look at the Little League teams, you find very, very few unmarried fathers coaching Little League teams. Yes. Uh, you, you, you look at... Uh, the, the guys who are engaged in uh, trying to get a four-way stop sign at, the, at an intersection where kids play, uh, that's married dads who do that kind of thing. It's not unmarried dads. The people who, who are engaged in the service clubs in town, who are engaged in, uh, actively in their, in their churches, 
overwhelmingly they are married fathers among the men. And so as you get this larger and larger group of rootless men, uh, you also have a collapse of social capital in these in, in, in working-class communities, which is the social scientist term for all the things that have traditionally gone into American community life. You write in Coming Apart, from the founding until well into the 20th century, it was unquestioned that children should be born only within marriage and that failure to maintain that state of affairs would produce catastrophic consequences for society. You call that a universal understanding. And then you point out that that understanding has now disappeared. You write elsewhere. Whether the parents remarry or remain single while the children are growing up makes little difference. Never married women produce the worst outcomes. Then you write this. All of these statements apply after controlling for the family socioeconomic status. You write then, I know of no other set of important findings that are as broadly accepted by social scientists who follow the technical literature, liberal as well as conservative, and yet are so resolutely ignored. How can that be? Because we are embarrassed, we meaning the upper middle class and on up, we are embarrassed to say publicly uh, that uh, that it's a bad thing for women to have babies out of wedlock. Why are we embarrassed? Well, because these days, if you say that, you are seen as demonizing the women who, who are in this situation. Uh, are we trying to punish the children by making them feel guilty? Are we trying to punish these mothers who are trying to get along without a husband, trying to make a living? Well, the fact is you don't want to make life, I mean, I don't want to make life more difficult for women in that situation. But in the course of wanting to be nice, we have ceased to think about what's good in terms of the long-term interests of of the children as well as of society. That's that's a very important distinction now between being nice and being good, because being nice is sort of a momentary thing whereby the immediate reaction is a nice one, is a pleasant one. Uh, but what you're being nice about can in the long term be disastrous. You know, my, uh, my, my solution to all of this, and I have posed this in some places, is look, okay, I understand why we don't want to demonize the mothers and the children. What's wrong with demonizing the guys? What's wrong with saying that a man who impregnates a woman with no intention of uh, being a father to that child is a bum, is a lowlife, uh, is to be despised? I can't think of a single solitary reason not to demonize them. Can we start there? Well, I'm ready to uh, to join a moral rearmament program here, but in order to do that, we have to look at another section of your book entitled The Founding Virtues. Something has been lost that is really prior to that equation, it seems to me. You talk about four founding virtues. Going back to the American experiment, you document the fact that our founders— and frankly, virtually all generations have followed, have, have understood that these virtues were necessary. You list them in your own way as industriousness, honesty, marriage, and religiosity. Those are actually collectives that each require even prior or, or uh, antecedent commitments. But nonetheless, you really can't have the kind of experiment we have in America without those four things. This is something that I didn't pick those four just out of uh, at random. I went through uh, the, the writings of the founders dealing with these issues, something that's made much easier, I should say, by the Internet, where you can search for things. But uh, there, these four are ones in which all of the founders, Adams, Madison, Jefferson, Washington, uh, and others, they all commented on them, and they all said essentially the same thing. Look, the Constitution is all very well, but for the Constitution to work, it requires uh, certain virtues in the people. 
And without those virtues in the people, the Constitution will fail. Adams said very memorably that uh, it would collapse like a whale going through a net uh, if, if, you, if you did not have self-government, literally self-government of individuals, of themselves, uh, in the people. And, and these four were the institutions that were absolutely indispensable. So when we talk about a decline in marriage, decline in industriousness, decline in honesty, just decline in religiosity, it's not, these are not just bad things in sort of specific ways. They also are, are deteriorations in the, in the things that make a limited government work, that make freedom work. And in that, looking ahead, you see the prospect of the end of the American experiment as we've known it. Now, that leads me to a very interesting and, I would have to say, ominous question. Which way is the middle of this equation moving? Uh, in other words, uh, we always talk about America, and, and you, you document this and critique it in your own way, but when we talk about this vast middle class, which way is it now moving? Well, if you go through the book, I have a whole lot of graphs showing the trend for the upper middle class and the trend for the working class. And I also calculated all the trends for the middle class, which is the middle 50% uh, of the population. And every single one of those trend lines is somewhere in between. <laughs> They're in the middle. There, is no, there are no exceptions to this. So when we talk about the decline in industriousness among working class males, there has also been a decline in the middle class, only not as large. When we talk about decline in marriage in the working class, there has also been a decline in the middle class, although not as large. So in other words, that middle 50% is not holding the line. The middle 50% is also deteriorating. Now, your most vocal critics in terms of this most recent book are not so much arguing about the data. Some of them will argue about this graph or that graph and what they will they will characterize in some places as anecdotal data. But, Dr. Murray, you inundate with so much data, it's really very difficult to crawl out of that argument. But they argue that when it comes to the end of the book, there's no so what. So what do we do? So what do we do in terms of, of your understanding? That's, you know, it's fascinating. If you don't supply a government policy as a solution, then you haven't supplied a solution. In my case, in the, in the book, I actually say that there needs to be a cultural shift, especially among the new upper class, setting the standard, but a cultural shift throughout the country. And cultural shifts don't occur because of deliberately sculpted government policies that produce the shift that was intended. What happens, of course, is we get cultural shifts because of government policy, but the, the policymakers hadn't the slightest idea that they were going to achieve those unfortunate cultural shifts when they pass the, the legislation. Culture, cultural change has to occur family by family, person by person. And that happens because you start a million and then 10 million and 100 million conversations across the dinner table, uh, among co-workers, among parents and children, and you don't have a neat program for doing that. What you do is just start it. And so what I did in the book is really in the last chapter, I'm, I'm really preaching to the new upper class and the upper middle class. And I'm saying, think about the way you're living your life. Uh, is this really your self-interest rightly understood? Are you maximizing that? So I, I, my solution is the, a change in hearts. 
a change in assessments of our lives. But I don't think the government can do much to help with that. I have been following the debate about your book even before the book came out uh, in terms of uh, the way things work in the world of ideas. And uh, I was very hopeful when I saw a review published in the Claremont Review. That is the Claremont Review of Books, summer 2012. It's by uh, Professor Shep Melnick, who teaches political science at Boston College. And here's what he says at the end of his review. He says, how has a man of Charles Murray's intelligence managed to paint himself into this intellectual corner? Facing the same set of problems, the late James Q. Wilson, a man Murray credits with being among his most important teachers, recommended experimental programs in preschools and government efforts to improve the parenting skills of poor young mothers. It goes on. You know, I look at that, Dr. Murray, and I have to say, I, I, I just want to go to this man and, uh, and say, I think your zip code is the problem. <laughs> it, 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 if you think either that James Q. Wilson's proposals were, were well summarized in that or, or that government can actually fulfill this responsibility, you're just going to dig a deeper hole. Yeah, I've, I know all of the data about the effectiveness of preschool programs, which are now being touted as the cure-all. And it is a fascinating case of cherry-picking the studies they want to talk about. They, they find a few which have had statistically significant results. They haven't had transformative results. The kids uh, who get the, the experimental programs still have lots of problems, but they are statistically significant differences. And they ignore all the other evaluations that don't show those results, and you end up with... Um, the, the kind of dismissive statement he made, which to me simply reflects wishful thinking on his part and a refusal to come to grips with what the balance of the data say. As far as I'm concerned, we have proven pretty much beyond a shadow of a doubt at this point that we do not know how to transform the lives of children who are raised in these environments uh, that give them so many strikes against them. Well, that's what brings me to the moral part of this, which is my main concern, the worldview implications. And uh, speaking as an evangelical Christian, how Christians should think about this, I'm going to let the left and the right, uh, uh, not as if I don't have a stake in this, but uh, I'm going to let the left and the right argue about specific programs. What appears to me to be missing from this particular critique of your work is the understanding the basic problem here is moral uh, maybe these programs can ameliorate, but they can't replace the father. M- maybe these programs can make some incremental gain, and uh, we can argue at what expense and, uh, and uh, to what cost of other priorities. But at the end of the day, the problem is a deeply moral problem, as you've exactly. suggested, that can only have a moral solution. Exactly. I've, uh, I've in the past uh, challenged uh, my readers to say, look, when are, we, when are you going to be willing to say that it is wrong? not just a mistake, but it is wrong to bring a child into the world that you are emotionally or intellectually or financially unprepared to care for. Uh, that doesn't mean that we should have laws against it. doesn't mean that we should bring the cops in. What we should start by saying is that the simple word wrong applies. Well, and Dr. Murray, you are talking about something that is right in terms of the center of my concern, and that has to do with one of my projects right now, which is the change in moral language. Let me document that just a bit for you. And, and, uh, and again, this is going to be anecdotal, but I think it will hit home. 
you have uh, someone raised in one of your, your super zips, uh, a young man who uh, is now, uh, well, we'll say in graduate school or in law school at Harvard, and uh, he has a girlfriend who is uh, a recent graduate of Wellesley, and, and uh, they develop a romantic relationship, and he gets her pregnant. The language that is so often used by his peers and his parents in the social circle is that what he did was stupid. Stupid is not the same thing as wrong. And so what you have, I would argue, and, and you didn't go into this at great length, but I'm trying to look at it myself. When you start to look at the world of the elites, there are very few moral issues that are not translated into a softer form of moral discourse. And that communicates, you know, it's, it's a loss of the ought in terms of, uh, of any kind of theistic ethic and it's, uh, or uh, a deontological ethic, we call it a command ethic. And, and what you're left with is, is just the idea that it's not that smart. In other words, I'll be honest, I don't think rational choice theory in terms of moral argumentation is going to get us out of this. No, it's it's not going to get us out. It It is going to have to be a moral reformation. The good news is that the United States actually has a history of doing that occasionally, of the, the Great Awakenings uh, in American history were classic cases of, of moral reformation and of the religious uh, base that, uh, that, that changed national norms quite substantially. Or more recently, you can take um, the Civil Rights Revolution, which went essentially from a standing start in the mid-50s to the Civil Rights Act of 64 in about a decade. So it is not impossible that such a moral revolution should take place, but it's not going to take place because of a president standing behind a podium and proposing uh, legislation to Congress. It's going to have to take place in American homes. One of the most frustrating aspects about our current American conversation, especially on controversial and sensitive issues such as these, is that the two polar ideologies in this country, the two political parties, the two opposite sectors of the worldview divide, really are, if we are honest, looking at the same set of facts, or we should be. And secondly, we really should be driven by many of the same concerns. Which is to say, if you look at the data that's addressed by Charles Murray in his book Coming Apart – you know that there are Americans who are really stuck in very destructive pathologies. They really are marked by a diminishing place in our society and dimming hopes for social mobility, as the sociologists describe it, the process whereby they might better their situation and, as Charles Murray points out, find greater happiness in that pursuit. But what you really see in this set of documents, in this data, in this overwhelming avalanche of information, is the fact that America is in big trouble. Now, interestingly, if you survey the contemporary political and cultural literature, you'll discover that people on the right and on the left share this concern. The polarization of America, the balkanization of America, the separation of America into two different nations, one very rich and privileged, one very highly educated and elite, And on the other hand, one that is increasingly separated from that elite, cut off from access to those cultural authorities and assets, and finding themselves deeper and deeper in a process of destructive pathologies. How in the world did this happen? Well, Charles Murray has an account of how it happened, and it is, I think, uh, in large part, a very accurate account. But there's more to the story, of course. And even in his book, when he deals with the founding virtues that our civilization and the American experiment require— He deals with religiosity. He deals with marriage, industriousness, and honesty. 
But what Charles Murray really doesn't deal with is the source of those very virtues, where they emerge, how they are nurtured, and how they are secured in a society. Those on the left reading this book are likely, if they're honest, to find a great deal of documentation that will help them. After all, the Occupy movement talks about the 1% and the 99% as the rest of us. You have the same kind of critique coming over the last 30 years from the left, sometimes even from the hard left, pointing to economics and to the equation of power as the most important ingredients in this oppression of the rest of America. Along comes Charles Murray to change the equation somewhat, but to argue that the bifurcation really is there. The cultural distance really is there. The polarization is undoubtedly there and that it is not good for America. The left and the right should agree on that. We've never been a classless society, but the emergence of an elite class cut off and simply reproducing itself, a class in which the children are ever better and better educated with higher and higher aspirations, with greater and greater opportunities, measured over against the vast majority of Americans who are moving away from that into lesser opportunity, lesser mobility, lesser education, lesser marital and home stability. That's not healthy for anyone, left or right. There has to be the consensus that something has to be done. Now, in generalized terms, what the left wants to say is that government's the solution to the problem. What the right wants to say is that government is more often the source of the problem or that which makes the problem worse rather than better. There are those who argue over this in terms of reams of statistics and studies. And at the end of the day, there's probably truth in both claims. I'm a conservative. I will generally see government as more likely the cause of the problem than the solution, but I'm going to be the first to admit there are problems that the government seems to be, at the last resort, the only entity that can make a decisive difference. And at the end of the day, the social safety net is something that we as communities no longer are able to offer just in terms of a unified community and a stable population and a network of relationships and mutual obligations that makes such a safety net in previous eras in American life thinkable. It really isn't so much thinkable now. A bit of honesty on both sides of the political equation would help here. And Charles Murray's book, in spite of all the controversy about it, or maybe even because of all the controversy about it, should be perhaps a meeting place for this conversation to take place. But as an evangelical Christian, thinking from a Christian worldview, I have to push back far beneath where Charles Murray is addressing these issues. I want to agree with him that the pathologies really do matter, but they matter to us to a greater degree than they matter to sociologists. We look at the fact that marriage is disappearing amongst many Americans, not only as a sociological and socioeconomic catastrophe, but as a theological and a spiritual catastrophe as well. We look at the breakup of the idea of marriage and the expectation of marriage and of having children and raising children within the context of intact marriage. We look at that not only as a matter of political influence and concern, but as a matter of deep spiritual consequence as well. That's why you have some of these younger pastors speaking to younger men in their congregation saying, you need to get married, you need to stay married, you need to have children, and you need to get a mortgage. In other words, you need to establish the kinds of obligations that mark adulthood, manhood. And the same thing needs to be said to young women. This should be your expectation. One of the things that wasn't covered in our conversation today is that one of the reasons why many young women say that marriage has now largely left their expectation is because they do not find men in the community worthy of their trust as husbands and as fathers of their children. But on the other side of that equation... The eclipse of marriage has led to this massive number of children being born to single mothers. 
And as Charles Murray said, the odds are increasing to the point that soon half of all children born in America will be born out of wedlock. In some communities, that percentage is already well over 50, 60, and even 70 percent. In the midst of our conversation, Charles Murray affirms something that he made very clearly as an argument in his book, and that is that there has to be a moral recovery. But this moral recovery isn't going to come from just anywhere. It's certainly not going to come from nowhere. It's going to come from someplace where morality still has binding authority. That's why, as a Christian theologian looking at this, I just have to wonder if the kind of moral structure with binding moral authority that is needed here can ever be expected to come from a secular source. In other words, are we looking here at the shape of a post-Christian society? Are we looking here at the inevitable result with all the horrible pathologies of a culture that no longer operates even on the basis of the binding morality of a Christian memory? I have to suspect that it just might be so. And yet, with Charles Murray, I have to be very hopeful that there can be a decisive change. With those on the right and on the political left who are concerned about these issues, I want to affirm the rightness of that concern and even amplify the urgency of that concern. But at the end of the day, regardless of where we stand on the political spectrum, Christians are obligated to stand in terms of fidelity to a Christian worldview that reminds us again and again, with incessant urgency, that there are prior commitments even to moral commitments, and there is a binding authority that must be present if there is to be any genuine moral change. In other words, it will not be enough if all Americans come to the conclusion and the shared moral consensus that having a child out of wedlock is stupid. There will be no adequate moral recovery until we understand that having a child out of wedlock is wrong, and that requires a set of moral commitments and shared moral convictions that have evaporated in much of America today. The question is, how can they be regained? I'm going to agree with Charles Murray that this moral change, this necessary moral revolution, is not going to come as the product merely of a president standing behind a podium. But that would help. It would help to have a clear moral vision on these issues demonstrated by anyone who stands as president or, furthermore, by all cultural authorities. I'm going to agree with Charles Murray that this is the kind of conversation that needs to take place around every family table. But I'm going to say to you, as I remind myself, this affirms more than anything else why the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the church and why the church at the end of the day may be the only people on earth who understand what these issues mean and why they matter. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Charles Murray, for thinking with me today. You can find his book coming apart at your local bookstore. Before I close, I want to direct your attention to the release of my upcoming book, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership That Matters. My concern is to develop effective leaders who have more than administrative skill, who develop more than vision. Leaders need to be able to change the hearts and minds of those they lead. In other words, they need to develop the conviction to lead. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.